Thank you for coming to today's briefing. Uh, as you all know, this is an extremely important topic uh, having to do with who ultimately gets here to Washington to make the laws that have such a great impact upon our lives and uh, freedom and prosperity. Um, as many of you know, tomorrow is the Democratic primary in Pennsylvania, and uh, I'm sure we're all watching that with apt attention. And uh, it's also the day that the Supreme Court is going to hear Davis versus FEC, which uh, is an important challenge to the McCain-Feingold Campaign Finance Reform Act. I'm not going to go any further into that, since we have two of our distinguished scholars to speak uh, in detail about that. But uh, before we turn to them, I want to do two things really quickly. First of all, if you haven't already seen this, it's the Cato Handbook on Policy. It's a comprehensive guide to what we think policymakers should be doing on the issues. And also, uh, this is the fallacy of campaign finance reform. It's Dr. Sample's book about campaign finance reform. And uh, if you haven't already, read, haven't already read it, and I suspect most of you haven't, well, by all means, pick up a copy and uh, you know, learn more about the issue. Our first speaker today is Ilya Shapiro. He's a senior fellow in constitutional studies and editor-in-chief of the Cato Supreme Court Review. Before joining Cato, he was a special assistant and advisor to the multinational force in Iraq on rule of law issues, and he also practiced international, political, commercial, and antitrust litigation at Patent Box and Cleary Gottlieb. He actually specialized in uh, election law at Patent Box as well. Um, Mr. Shapiro writes the Dispatches from Purple America column from tcsdaily.com. He's written for a number of leading publications and uh, has appeared on various radio and uh, television programs. Before entering private practice, Mr. Shapiro clerked on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit. He holds degrees from Princeton University, the London School of Economics, and the University of Chicago Law School, and is also an adjunct professor at the George Washington University School of Law. Mr. Shapiro. Thanks very much for that, Kurt. Um, glad to have such a big crowd for what really is uh, a fairly technical case that we'll see tomorrow. Of course, the issues go far wider than this one case. But we're talking about self-funded campaigns here. To give you a little bit of background on tomorrow's case, uh, Jack Davis was the Democratic challenger to the incumbent Tom Reynolds in New York's 26th district, which covers uh, parts of Buffalo. Uh, he ran in 2004 and in 2006 and just recently declared that he would run again in 2008. Of course, Congressman Reynolds has uh, um, announced that he's retiring. Each of these years, he has uh, paid for his campaigns mostly from his own funds, uh, over a million dollars each. Uh, as, as you all may know, the average congressional campaign, in, I think in the 2006 cycle, cost, I think it was $1.4 John might, might correct me on that. Um, and that, that's an important figure because, as I'll discuss, the triggers for some of the more nefarious parts of the Millionaire's Amendment, this part of McCain-Feingold, that deals with self-funded candidates or tries to deal with the supposed problem kicks in when the candidate uh, files a, a form with the FEC saying that he's going to contribute at least $350,000 to his campaign. Now, that's expected to be less than a quarter of what the average um, congressional race is going to cost this cycle, this year. So, 
Uh, as I said, as part of McCain-Feingold in 2002, Congress passed this, what's come to be, uh, come to be known as the Millionaire's Amendment, uh, Section 319 of, of, of BICRA, of the Bipartisan Campaign Reform Act. Uh, under this Millionaire's Amendment, uh, when there are separate provisions for the House and for the Senate, but they essentially work the same way. The numbers are a little different, but all the mechanisms are the same. Um, I'm going to be speaking of numbers for the House because that's what uh, this uh, Davis case is challenging that will be argued tomorrow. Um, so when a candidate announces, declares that he's going, to, that he's going to run, there's this form that he has to fill out. And one of, the, one of the boxes that he needs to fill out to the Federal Election Commission is um, how much money of his own uh, of his own money he's going to spend. And if it's more than 350000 then... Uh, the opponent, which is typically the incumbent, um, is allowed to, based on this very complex, convoluted formula of who has how much money during which, which time, and we can get into a little bit of that, how the war chest works, um, all of these things, um, is allowed to receive increased contributions. So you all may know that an individual is only allowed to donate $2,300 uh, per campaign per cycle, uh, once to the primary and once to the general election campaign fund, and if the opponent of this self-funded candidate, this so-called millionaire, um, chooses to, uh, he can receive contributions to triple that amount in the House. I believe it's six times in the Senate. Uh, Also, this opponent of the self-funded candidate um, is no longer bound by the limits on coordination of uh, expenses by the national party. So there are certain restrictions that McCain-Feingold puts in um, to how much a, in this case, Reynolds, Congressman Reynolds could coordinate with the RNC uh, or the RCCC. Um, if he had taken advantage of, um, of Section 319's provisions, which he didn't, uh, Congressman Reynolds, even though he was entitled to in fighting his races against uh, Jack Davis, to um, use these provisions, uh, he could have um, had no limits on the amount of contra- uh, cooperation, coordination with the national party. Now, part of the reason why Congress designed this very convoluted method of, of trying to deal with the stated interest of preventing someone from simply being able to buy a seat in Congress is that in the 1976 case of Buckley versus Vallejo, the kind of foundational case of campaign finance, the Supreme Court said, well, most importantly, it said that uh, you cannot limit expenditures by a campaign because that is a restriction on on free speech. Um, Using money to speak politically is one of the foundational aspects of the First Amendment, because if not political speech, you know, what, does the first, what was the First Amendment, thinking back to the founding era, what was it meant to protect? Um, effectively, however, uh, this amendment acts as incumbency protection because uh, it discourages challengers from spending that much money. And it enhances the natural advantages to incumbency. For example, the way that the um, differential in money between the candidates is calculated, which is a key uh, calculation that's done to, to determine how much 
uh, of the contribution limit the, the opponent is allowed to exceed. Um, it doesn't include money that's received in the campaign year, so it ends with what the war chest is as of, in this cycle, the end of 2007. Um, it doesn't take into account that uh, other advantages to incumbency, like the ability to pass earmarks and other bills, um, the, the natural name recognition and higher profile of incumbents that, that incumbents enjoy over challengers, uh, travel, taxpayer-funded travel back to the home district, uh, franking privileges to get your message out, all of these uh, things that are part and parcel of being a congressman or a senator that all of you in this room, I'm sure, are well aware, uh, that's an advantage to, to incumbency, which um, the you know, Millionaire's Amendment isn't meant to deal with. The only thing, again, that it's concerned with is this supposed um, desire not to prevent people from buying their own uh, seat in Congress. And, of course, there's, there's a lot of cross-currents in play there. I mean, the whole rationale behind McCain-Feingold uh, if you'll recall, was to get money out of politics or at least to get, the, get corruption or the corrosive influences of special interests out of politics. Um, so on the one hand, you could say that if somebody funds their own campaign, well, that's the epitome of having a, a non-corrosive campaign. You're not going to be corrupted by your own money, and therefore a candidate that can fund their own campaign is cleaner, is purer for our political system than even an incumbent who is beholden to these special interests. So there's some, there's some um, tensions between the, the stated uh, purpose of the campaign finance reform of McCain-Feingold altogether and this millionaire's amendment. How am I doing on time? Okay. Um, another important part of, and an integral part of how this uh, whole machinery of the Millionaire's Amendment works is that when a candidate declares that he's going to be spending at least 350000 of his own money, uh, or if unexpectedly he reaches that sum, and it's not clear if in the original FEC filing he says that he's not going to spend three fifty, and then because of the nature of the campaign or what have you, bad fundraising, he ends up spending that, it's not clear what kind of criminal or civil liability attaches at that point, because then you know, the FEC could, uh, in theory, bring an enforcement action saying that that original form was not filed in good faith or uh, was negligent because, well, he should have known that he, could have, he was going to spend more than 350000 So that's a murky area. But anyway, um, when that 350000 uh, mark is reached, either by the form or, or in fact, uh, every disclosure over t every uh, expenditure over ten thousand dollars has to be disclosed within twenty four hours publicly to the FEC and to the opponent. Now you can imagine, you know, when when a candidate wants to wants to purchase a big media buy, whether a radio ad or a TV ad, uh, printing off a lot of leaflets, all these big ticket expenses that we know about in modern campaigns. Within twenty four hours, there's a signal uh, to the opponent that this expenditure is about to be made. Therefore, the opponent, again, typically the incumbent, knows that, oh, well, my, my challenger is about to spend a lot of money. Maybe it's TV, maybe it's radio, but I've got to get out there and counteract that message and maybe blunt it somehow. So it's a kind of a strategic disadvantage on top of the monetary disadvantage that the self-funded candidate effectively creates for himself by deciding to speak beyond that mark.
Now, what's interesting here, again, is clearly this is a, any type of restriction on political speech is an infringement of some sort, a violation of some sort, of some degree, on First Amendment rights, as I alluded to. Now, this doesn't mean that, of course, we never tolerate infringements on the First Amendment. You, know, you can't yell fire in a crowded theater. You can't uh, uh, you know, speak a fraud. There's all these restrictions on, on freedom of speech on the First Amendment. Uh, similarly, we have the, the Supreme Court has said that McCain, certain provisions of McCain-Feingold are, are, are constitutional. They're, they're fine. Uh, we're allowed to uh, restrict individual contributions to $2,300, or actually $2,000 in 2002, but indexed for inflation. In this cycle, it's $2,300. Um, but there has to be a compelling government interest because, of course, it's an infringement on a fundamental right, and the way that the restriction is drawn has to be narrowly tailored. So what's the compelling government interest here? Well, as I said, one is, for all campaign finance regulations, an anti-corruption interest. Well, restricting or, or penalizing a candidate to, from using his own funds is counteracts or acts against the... Uh, uh, the, the anti-corruption interest. This, in, in effect, um, you, you know, more, more um, funding for the candidate from his own pocket isn't corrupting, but by incentivizing that candidate to raise money from outside groups, well, that is, again, enhances the supposed, alleged corruption. That's the purpose from McCain-Feingold. Uh, while simultaneously relaxing the contribution limits and the, and the coordination limits on the opponent, well, that's like saying, well, the opponent can ignore uh, these corruptive influences or will allow it to happen. So clearly, anti-corruption is not a valid, uh, compelling government interest here, justifying the infringement on the First Amendment. Well, then there's the leveling the playing field interest, right? We, we want to make sure that, uh, that everybody, uh, regardless of financial ability, uh, is able to compete and run for Congress. We're all for the, the merit and the free market of ideas and all the rest of this. Well, uh, another important thing that Buckley said, that the Supreme Court said in this foundational case in 1976, was that leveling the financial field was not explicitly not a valid uh, government interest. So we can argue the policy of it, and you know we can go into that in Q&A, but as a matter of law, as a matter of constitutional law, leveling the playing field is not a valid government interest. Therefore, there is simply no um, valid, no, no legitimate constitutional interest that the, that the government can, uh, can posit to overcome this blatant infringement on the First Amendment. And um, uh, Cato filed a brief, uh, the, the Cato Institute filed a brief in this case in which we argued two things. In addition to what the, the, the petitioner, what Jack Davis's lawyers are going to be arguing tomorrow, we made the two, two following points. First of all, um, on top of all this that I've discussed, this um, uh, regulation, the Millionaire's Amendment, forces uh, an unconstitutional choice between competing rights. So you get to choose either to fund your own campaign and exercise your own political rights beyond $350,000, uh, or um, uh, w which will, if you do that, it'll benefit your opponent, and you know you might not want to do that. Or you can restrict your speech. And secondly, um, it, uh, as I said, it uh, th these disclosure provisions, uh, these reporting burdens, chill that person's speech because he doesn't want to. Uh, 
um, engage in, uh, give strategic t- signals to his opponent. Uh, he doesn't want to have to fill in all this burdensome paperwork, hire accountants and lawyers to do this under personal, uh, under threat of personal criminal and civil um, liability. So I think I will, um, I think I'll leave it there and uh, let John discuss the, the larger kind of political issues and empirical studies that have been done in this area. I welcome your, your questions on this particular case on the Millionaire's Amendment or on uh, McCain-Feingold generally that you might be interested in. Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Dr. John Samples. He directs the Cato Center for Representative Government, which studies campaign finance regulation, delegation of legislative authority, term limits, and the political culture of limited government and the civic virtues necessary for liberty. He is an adjunct professor at Johns Hopkins University, and prior to joining Cato, Sample served eight years as director of Georgetown University Press, and before that, as vice president of the 20th Century Fund. He has, pu- he has published scholarly articles in Society, History of Political Thought, and Telos. Sample has also been featured in mainstream publications and a variety of television programs. Dr. Samples received his Ph.D. in political science from Rutgers University. Dr. Samples. Thank you all for coming today. You know, Ilya's uh, comments and uh, presentation reminded me of a fundamental flaw, I think, and there are many fundamental flaws in campaign finance law, but there's one in jurisprudence, too, that is this notion that uh, if you're spending your own money, you can't really corrupt yourself. I don't know about you, but all the times I've corrupted myself in my life, it involves spending my own money. <laughs> the, um, I want to talk about the, this whole case from a different point of view, as Ilya suggested, more a political science or political economy point of view. I try to look at these things as regulations and, and think about them in, in many ways like you think about other regulations. There is in the economic, relation, uh, economic regulation literature a notion that regulations tend to be uh, – to serve two purposes, which is often thought of in terms of bootleggers and Baptist. Now, what is a bootlegger and a Baptist? Well, if, uh, if you're a little bit older, you remember that there was a time in this country, in many parts of the country, when uh, sales of liquor on Sunday were, were banned, the so-called blue laws. And the analysis of that suggests that it served two kinds of interests. On the one hand, it was the Baptist interest, that is, the religious uh, fervor, which wanted to reduce the consumption of liquor. So they uh, went to the city council, city government, and got got the blue law passed. But, of course, that kind of ideal uh, argument or religious argument also served the interest of the bootlegger. By creating an artificial shortage for liquor on Sundays, the bootlegger had a market and a market that was priced higher than it would be otherwise. So in other words, you look for both the stated reasons and the reasons uh, that actually serve more self-interested ends. Uh, any, any piece of regulation, and you find them very commonly in economic regulations. Well, in this uh, case, of course, the Millionaire's Amendment, uh, the most important uh, Baptist argument is the equity and fairness argument, and Ilya's told you why that's not going to fly, I don't think, at the Supreme Court. But what about the other side of it? What are the bootleggers at stake here? Well, bootleggers tend to be of two sorts in campaign finance legislation. They tend to be uh, 
partisan. That is, they're trying. Legislators are trying to do things with their party hats on. They're trying to make things work better so that their their party will win more more elections, will hold a majority or whatever. Or they tend to be incumbents who, as a rule, across party lines are trying to draft legislations that is more helpful to their regulation in regard to challengers. And usually this involves uh, with incumbents, and the Millionaire's Amendment is pretty classic uh, incumbent protection regulation. Uh, It involves doing something about entry to political markets, to the electoral markets. That is, you make it harder to have entry because you increase the price of it, you increase the transaction cost of funding a, uh, a political campaign, and you do it in a way that avoids errors. That is, you write legislation that really only affects one party or affects one group of people like challengers so that you don't have legislation that just uh, some of it harms incumbents or harms the members of your party. As to this legislation, we can look at, in some sense at the motivation of incumbents. One of the members in the House side that was working uh, to get this amendment in to BICRA was uh, uh, Shelley Moore Capito from West Virginia, uh, a Republican from West Virginia, who stated it's a way to correct what I believe is one of the most glaring inequities in the current system. Uh, she had run in 2000 against a self-financer who had spent over $5.6 million in his campaign, and in 2002 she faced uh, another one who, uh, who raised $8 million. In a sense, this amendment may have gotten into the law for to really speak to the interest of a relatively small number of people, but at the time, Bikra was uh, in search of votes everywhere, particularly Republican votes. It wouldn't be like, uh, unlikely that that would happen. Now, as to regards the, again, the bootlegging element in the Millionaire's Amendment, let me go back and talk about one part of it that Ilya didn't mention, but I think is crucial for understanding what's going on here, which is the regulations on the use of self-loans. That is, up until um, BICRA, it was a very common way for a self-funder to uh, undertake a political race was to loan themselves the money. And then if they won, and many times they didn't win, but if they did win, uh, they they could uh, raise money in the usual way uh, and pay back the loans. So in a sense, it re- that was a reduction of a cost mechanism for self-funders. Now, the Millionaire's Amendment, along with what you heard it did have in it, also had changed the rules about those loans. The loans after BICRA could only uh, go up to 250000 in the sense of could be re- being repaid by future contributors. So you essentially had to pay for anything above 250000 uh, and... In that sense, the effort was very clearly here, I think, to try to increase the cost and risk of running as a self-funder. Um, and, in fact, that worked in a certain sense. Uh, that is to say, in the years after BICRA, the number of candidates who loaned money to themselves and the volume of the loans uh, went down significantly. So you see the effect. You sort of increase the price and you get fewer people loaning money to themselves. The problem was, uh, from the incumbent's point of view or from the point of view of the legislation, that didn't work in any broader sense because it looks like the self-funders in those thereafter, after BICRA, simply uh, replaced the loan money with their own funding anyway. So you don't get a reduction in overall self-funding, although that's a little complicated by uh, some of the evidence, which was a huge uh, primary 
uh, fight in um, Illinois that involved one candidate self-funding for $30 million. Uh, but I think this was a revelation, in a sense, about the nature of this legislation. If you're, you stop the self-funding cutoff at $250,000, what exactly was the uh, public purpose at issue there? Was it the case that you, know, you would be subject to corruption, corrupting influences, if you raise money within the contribution limits to pay back the money over 250000 but you wouldn't be subject to that under 250000 uh, it's really uh, uh, problematic to think about what exactly were the purposes of this kind of legislation about the uses of loans. But again, notice this is the essence, in my, in my view, of campaign finance legislation. Small technical parts of it are used in ways to change, or at least at the margins, move toward a change in outcomes in actual le legislation. Now, the central part of this involves disclosure by of the millionaires' amendment, involves disclosure by uh, the millionaires or the self-funders, and on the other side, what we would call higher contribution limits for the person running against a self-funder. Now, one important point is here, I think, is, is easy to miss. This legislation admits what people like me have always said about contribution limits which is that they are designed to increase the cost of raising money and therefore to reduce and increase the price of entry and therefore reduce the likelihood that someone will enter at, uh, the political market at the margins. This legislation says that it is easier to raise money when you blow the caps off uh, progressively. So in that sense, that's an important lesson about contribution limits when we keep in mind that there have been, were from, 2000, uh, from 1974 to 2003, progressively smaller contribution limits in federal law, which were not updated for inflation and became smaller and smaller. That suggests the nature of what contribution limits were really doing as opposed to public purposes like preventing corruption. However, this raises a tough question for people like me that you might want to say to me, why don't a deregulator or liberalizer like you, Samples, why don't you favor this? After all, there's a loosening of the rules on campaign contributions for whoever's running against a self-funder. It's true the self-funder has to go through some uh, more uh, disclosure, but that's not a big deal, and you get a lot of loosening on the, eventually, on the side of the contribution limits. So really, isn't this a Cato kind of uh, regulation? That's actually why our brief is in support of neither uh, side. That's how it's styled, because that, that, that's the, uh, the contradiction here. Um, well, there's, a, there's also a problem with the argument, fortunately, because, uh, and I think the problem is, why, I think if this applied generally, I will argue in a minute, if it applied generally, it would be pretty attractive. And in fact, I think the reasoning behind the Millionaire's Amendment actually does uh, support considerable deregulation. But let me explain why. One of the questions here is, all right, let's make that argument uh, clear. Why should it apply only to the case of challengers with money, which is basically who it applies to? What if the principle, this principle uh, underneath and reasoning underneath the Millionaire's Amendment applied when any opponent faces a candidate lacking resources? Big difference in uh, the two candidates. Now, in most races, in most races, most of the time, 
Incumbents with significant resources that Ilya mentioned, not just name recognition, but the people you work for, you are one of the resources. The staff work you do for, for them, the staff work you or others do in the state, and so on. Significant resources that come to the beginning, the opening day of the campaign. In many cases, the vision of self-funder versus a poor, weak other candidate is true, except it's incumbents versus challengers, right? So if that reasoning follows through here, this would suggest um, that in the paradigmatic case of self-funder versus incumbent, you wouldn't require any liberalization of contribution limits because both of them are roughly equal. They both have significant resources. In cases of challengers, however, who do not self-fund, liberalization would be in order because they are facing someone with a lot of implicit resources that they bring to the race, that is, an incumbent member of Congress. So, in fact, it seems to me that the reasoning of the Millionaires Amendment is actually an argument for uh, liberalizing contribution limits for most challengers most of the time. Now, final set of issues, what I talk about in terms of the benefit of the doubt, which is some of the empirical measures. There are some doubts about the effects of the Millionaires Amendment. That is, what did it practically do? In 2004, only one House incumbent made use of the Millionaires Amendment to uh, have loosened contribution limits, uh, and, and even that was a relatively small portion of his overall numbers. Um, it's also true, that, however, that Millionaire's Amendment may have helped incumbents indirectly by deterring potential self-financers from running. After steadily increasing over 10 previous election cycles, 10 previous election cycles, the number of incumbent challengers who, who, uh, use, whose personal expenditures exceeded the Millionaire's uh, Amendment's thresholds dropped from 17 in 2002, which is the cut point for the law, to 13 in 2004. So the movement was correct. The law is passed. You get fewer self-funders. The problem with that is twofold. One is it may simply be random variation. If you've got uh, numbers like this, if it had gone from 17 to 2, you would say, well, there's really no doubt there's something going on here. It went from 17 to 13. It's true it went up. The number of self-funders had increased steadily in the past, the 10 years prior to that. But you can't draw a conclusion that's absolutely watertight, in part also because it's difficult to generalize from one cycle. And I think the courts here really have to set the empirical record to the side because the empirical record's not strong enough. It's not long enough. It's not detailed enough to say, well, we know that the, the Millionaire's Amendment, in fact, acts as incumbent protection. This is more a question of the origins and the intentions behind it. And here's where I think that argument can go. Um, and at the same time, also, I would say on the empirical side, you have to, to recognize there's also very little evidence that self-funding leads to a monopoly on election by the wealthy. In other words, the putative kind of purpose underneath this is, in fact, not something that we, don't, we have much uh, evidence happens. In fact, self-funders don't do very well, generally speaking. They certainly can't do, generally do not buy uh, elections. And in fact, they make it harder for themselves. The most famous case uh, of a primary and, and that happening was, of course, John Corzine in New Jersey. 
and running in a democratic state, he, he won by something like uh, two, two or three percent when he spent uh, 30 million in the primary and 30 million in the general election. He did worse than a Democrat would have been expected to do. Uh, now, here's how I think we should, to finish up, we should look at this. Um, the Roberts Court says the benefit of the doubt, as recently said, the benefit of the doubt in these issues should go to speech and to the speaker rather than to the censor. I think I would interpret that to mean in these kinds of cases, there should be a general presumption of uh, self-serving regulation by incumbents. It should be a presumption that is rebuttable. That is, you could talk about the legislation in ways that was persuasive, and you could overcome that presumption. But these sort of regulations on entry, regulations that, by the way, fall almost exclusively on challengers, those kind, that is not something that uh, overrides a presumption that this is, not, uh, that this is incumbent protection. To that, I would add uh, a number of pieces of evidence that I've mentioned here, Capito's remarks and her, her, her situation, her instrumental role in passing the legislation and managing it, uh, her situation two years prior to it, the treatment of the loans provision to make it harder to presumably, or it was thought to make it harder to raise money to run, the fact that it, the law applies almost always to challengers, and the restricted compass of the principle of fairness and equality that is evoked in this to justify the, mil the millionaire's amendment in this particular case. It's not as if they're going around looking for situations where two candidates have uh, different resources and applying laws to, to make it, uh, to bring it about. I think Ilya's right, they won't be able to bring that off because if it, the past law makes any difference at all, it's simply not a justified uh, reason for uh, regulating campaign finance. But more generally, I think uh, the court should move to a position, if it really believes in giving the benefit of the doubt to the speaker and not the censor, that there's of a presumption that legislation of this, sh this sort is, in fact, incumbent protection. Thank you very much.